Good morning, Leon. Good afternoon, Tashkent, and good evening, Chengdu. From Washington, D.C., I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss President Biden's surprise trip to Ukraine and the cost-of-living protests in Suriname. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Very well. Very well, Ethan. You? I'm doing great. Yeah, thank you so much for asking. Uh, I really appreciate that. So, uh, Monday morning, you wake up and you see our team's Slack channel is blowing up. The front pages of every newspaper around the world blazoned with big letters, Biden in Ukraine. Were you surprised? In a word, yes. I I, I was surprised. And I think anybody uh, not in the inner, inner workings of the White House was pretty surprised, too. Um you know, we knew we knew Biden would be in Poland this week for a series of meetings with uh, the Bucharest Nine, which is these Eastern European NATO members. It's the the name given to to that grouping, um, and we knew that he was planning a big speech, and we probably we knew that it would be sort of you know about Ukraine and the and the Eastern European uh, situation in general. But I don't think we knew he was going to go to Kiev. Um, I think I think you know people who are far more diligent watchers of DC and presidential politics. Uh, spotted a suspicious gap in the White House schedule uh, in the evening uh, on Sunday, um, but you know, other than other than those few people who who might have suspected it, uh, I don't think anyone knew it. So yeah, was surprised. You know, the the logistical challenges for this kind of trip are enormous, right? Like getting the most visible person on the planet into the capital of of the world's most sort of hot war zone. Biden had a couple of advisors with him and a few journalists. I read on the BBC that there were two journalists on on board that were sworn to secrecy um, that that travelled with him. Uh, so they left DC, I guess, on Sunday morning. Quick pit stop in Germany, uh, then a ten hour train journey to to Kiev through Poland. Um, you know, all under the cover of darkness with the curtains closed, like it's you know it's a war zone. So you you can't be kind of telegraphing where the president of the United States is. Um, and then he was there for five hours, and then returned journey back to Poland to uh, to give the speech. So it was um, it was a whirlwind trip and a very secret trip and a, a you know an impressive logistical trip. I, I worked at a golf course for a summer, and uh, President Obama, by then former President Obama, uh, was planning to come play around. Uh, and it took about a month of regular Secret Service visits to prepare the security for this visit. Uh, and he was just going to play around a golf in Cape Cod. Biden was going to the, one of the most dangerous places on earth. So why go through all the trouble then? I mean, 20 hours of train travel alone, not to mention the flight from D.C. for a five-hour meeting. What what use is this? Yeah, who'd be, who'd be president, right, if you can't go play around a golf without a month's planning? <laughs> but to your question about why to go through all of that, I think it's you know it's a hugely symbolic visit. The, the, the power in the president of... The United States standing with the president of Ukraine in Kiev. We also have that image next to the the church there in Kiev that is that symbol of Ukraine. Particularly from the Ukrainian viewpoint, you can't put a price on that, right? Um, you know, Biden's the last. He's not the only, but he's the last of the sort of big Western benefactors. Uh, he's the last of the leaders to visit. So you know, you've had the UK. You've had uh, Schultz went from Germany. Trudeau, Macron, all these guys have already been to uh, to to Kiev. So Biden was kind of the last big Western ally to visit. Um, and obviously, the US is the most important. They're 
the US is responsible for most of the aid, um, the military aid, and has been, you know, I would argue probably giving Ukraine the most support out of any single nation. It probably gives a huge boost to Ukrainian morale. You know, like this idea that, wow, the president wouldn't have come to our country if the US was thinking about giving up support anytime soon. So it's this kind of, you know, boosts morale and it's and it's, it says that America's there to stay, all that kind of stuff. So it's a psychological boost. Not to mention that uh, the one year anniversary of the war is on Friday. So the, the timing couldn't have been better for uh, a psychological boost, like you said. But was there any big news coming from the visit or, you know, was it purely symbolic? Yeah, I think it, I think you know, 95% symbolic, right? There were a couple of little announcements about releasing some more um, aid to Ukraine, $500 million, I think, which is, you know, nothing compared to the 50-odd billion that they've dropped so far, the US has dropped so far. Uh, so realistically, and, and, you know, Biden's not going to Ukraine to announce anything. It's 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 the symbolism of him going there. Uh, you know, you know, you mentioned that it's just before the the one year anniversary of of the invasion, but it was also on the eve of a planned Russian uh, Putin's speech to the nation, the Russian nation. So it kind of, you know, I don't say it gazumped it, but it kind of, you know, it it turned the spotlight onto this issue right at the time that Putin is probably wanting to paint to the Russian people this idea of like, you know this is a just war, we're winning it, blah, 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 blah. Well, you have the, the American president standing in Kiev saying, we're, we're here for the, the long haul and you're not going to win. So it kind of pushes back against Putin's narrative as well. So symbolism from Biden, symbolism from Putin. Did, did Putin uh, respond to this trip with anything strategic or, or interesting and important? Yeah. Interestingly, I think it, it's easy to get confused with this one, but Putin pulled or he suspended Russia's participation in what's called the New START Treaty. Uh, it's a nuclear arms control treaty that's been around for a while, um, designed to sort of limit the amount of nuclear weapons in existence and at least account for where they are and how they're used and all this kind of stuff. You know, very important stuff. So it gets complex very quickly. Essentially, Putin suspended Russia's involvement in the treaty, but legally speaking, you can't really suspend your involvement. You either withdraw from the treaty or you continue in the treaty. So I think it's it's one of those ones we're going to have to watch how it actually unfolds, whether it was Putin making threats and like rattling the nuclear saber as per, as per usual, or whether there is something behind this that Russians start to become less cooperative with nuclear disarmament or at least non-proliferation um, measures. Uh, but it's bit, probably a bit too early to tell what's going to come of that. But it's big news nonetheless. So, John, uh, we're approaching day 365 of the war. I know I remember where I was on day one. I'm sure you do, too. Yeah. So as we as we get to the year mark, what's on your mind? Yeah, I do remember where we were. I was I was watching TV, like my eyes bulging out of my head, like unable to believe what was happening. And then I think for weeks on end. Yeah, and international intrigue kind of went into crisis mode a little bit, as you know, as grandiose as that sounds. We were covering it pretty closely for the first couple of weeks until we realized this was going to be a long run thing. Um, and I think that's probably that's probably the biggest takeaway from this is that it's been going for a year and it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon, right? Um, after the initial kind of weeks and months of the war didn't go Russia's way, it became very clear that Ukraine wasn't going to feel compelled to negotiate negotiate away its territory. Um, and as we've just said, Putin isn't the kind of fellow, and the Russian you know state system isn't the kind of system that says, "Oh, okay, whoops, we've made a mistake. We'll take the, we'll take the L and go home." Um, so you know, 
nothing nothing is positive on that front. And, you know, we're not even at the stage where people are starting to talk about wanting negotiations in the future. So you've got to get to that stage before you get to the, okay, let's have negotiations, before you get to the brokered negotiations, then back to the table and then a, and then a peace treaty. So, you know, it's barring something catastrophic, which touch wood's not going to happen, we're, we're a long way from peace. Today's show is sponsored by one of my favorite newsletters, 1440. The team from 1440 monitors scores of news sites to find the stories that matter the most from science and culture to business, politics, even sports. They then pull the most important pieces together into a single digest every weekday morning. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. Uh, So next up, we're looking at violent protests in the small South American country of Suriname last week. So, John, what's the story? Yeah, so this is the news that last Friday about 2,000 people in the capital, Paramaribo, took to the streets chanting anti-government slogans and accusing officials of corruption, and they were protesting a spiralling cost-of-living crisis. Um, the protests were in, you know, outside the National Assembly in the capital um, and, you know, involved police and, and, and some clashes between the protesters and police. Um, rubber rubber bullets and tear gas, I, I believe, were used. Um, and then the protests broke through the security barrier and stormed the parliament building, which, you know, isn't great. Um, ultimately, the crowd was dispersed and, and, and you know, th- things ended within a sort of a day, but it's shaken the country. Um, and the, the president has promised to increase security around the capital and, you know, police forces are on edge. They're arresting people. So it's this very, very... Um, tense moment in in Suriname. This this is clearly part of a trend, right? You know, of, of capital buildings, I guess specifically across the Americas being stormed by protesters. Were the protesters in Suriname driven by the same political motivations as those in Washington and Brasilia or is something different happening here? Yeah, I think the methods are the same. This storming the storming the capital has become you know, fairly, fairly uh, standard procedure if you're protesting these days. But I think the protesters in Suriname have a very different set of concerns to the Brazilians or the Americans in, in 2021. Uh, so the, these protesters are worried about the government's economic management. Um, and they seem to have a point, right? Like inflation in Suriname's 54% in December, um, you know, due to things outside of its control, sure. But you know, I think there's a sense that the government has done a pretty bad job of managing the economy. I think the wrinkle here too is that the crisis has been made worse because they're trying to get into compliance with an IMF uh, agreement, uh, 2022 IMF agreement that was, you know, as they as they as the IMF does, lends money to countries but demands economic reform in return. And this includes eliminating subsidies, you know, for electricity, gas, food, these kinds of things. So you have this government that's, or, you know, got natural causes for inflation and then is trying to get into compliance with a, with an IMF bailout agreement that has things that will increase inflation potentially. Um, and that's made everything much worse. And, and obviously, um, without those subsidies, average people in Suriname can't afford to purchase basic things. So they need the subsidies, but they need the IMF loan. It's a bit of a mess, to be honest. Is Suriname's story, you know, about working diligently to meet the terms of an IMF bailout and sometimes painfully to meet the terms 
of an IMF bailout? Is, is that story unique? No, no, not at all. I mean, we're seeing it right around the world in, in plenty of countries, right? This idea that you, you need money from the IMF, but you at, you know that what they require to give you that money makes the current economic pain worse um you know or can do i shouldn't say it does because it it you know it's it's case by case but it certainly can contribute to the things that are affecting a lot of these countries the imf has a very clear mandate uh, about how they're right. willing to negotiate with economies and and sometimes that requires turning the economy inside out first right yeah exactly right and look this isn't this isn't a place for me to sort of criticize that because you know it has its place. It, it's just merely the observation that sometimes the medicine is, you know, is painful, right? Um, you know, we saw this in Sri Lanka last year when the protesters forced the president to flee the country. It was almost, you know, exactly the same scenario. It was cost of living crisis, couldn't afford, you know, things like petrol and, and you know, real basic necessities. Um, IMF bailout unsure, you know, protesters rise up and say, we don't know, you know, it may well be external, it may well be internal mismanagement, but we're not happy either way. And right and rightly so. It happened in Pakistan. You know, it's it's not, I wouldn't say it's a common occurrence, but it's not unheard of either. Um, you know, but because these countries don't have much choice but to abide by the IMF's terms. Um, and you know, the IMF isn't trying to destroy these economies, but it's not going to give cash to a government that it thinks is mismanaging the economy without making changes. So it's it's a it's a really difficult situation. Well thanks John. Thanks Ethan. Chat soon. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. On Monday, the Bangladeshi government shut down a top opposition newspaper, which has been published for over 30 years. Uh, The decision follows a government order to close almost 200 opposition websites. Portugal will follow Ireland and cancel its golden visa program launched in 2012 to expedite residency applications for wealthy foreign investors. While the program has drawn billions of dollars in investment and revenue, mostly from China, Critics say it's also driving the country's spiraling cost of living crisis. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, a huge thank you to the brave men and women of England's West Mercia Police Department who helped stop what would have surely been the greatest crime of the 21st century. You'll have to check out the newsletter to see what they did. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.